You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. It's my pleasure to introduce the award-winning Galician-born, no, London-born, <laughs> but pamphlet-spread Galician writer, journalist and translator Jesus Fraga. A graduate in journalism from the University of Salamanca, Jesus has been writing for the newspaper La Voz de Galicia since 1996. He writes with adult and young adult fiction, and his novel Virtudes en Estereos, en Estereos uh, which is here in front of us, which he'll talk to us about today, was published originally in Galician and in self-translation to Spanish in 2020. And the novel won the Blanco Award and the Galician Critics Awards, as well as Spain's National Prize for Narrative the most prestigious book prize in Spain and the first time a novel in Galician has won an award since 2003. Um, so that's making Jesus only one of four Galician language writers who's ever won this award. Jesus' other works include Tute para Cuatro, A Teta, and Soliman. His two young adult titles, O Elefante Branco and Reo, received the Sarmiento and the Queen Lupa Awards respectively. Braga has translated important works into Galician by writers such as Vladimir Nabokov, uh, Julian Barnes, Jack Kerouac, Anne Fine, Roald Dahl, Sylvia Plath, Edith Nesbitt, and Robert McFarlane, among others. So I'll pass over to Jesus. Thank you very much thank for joining us. Okay, thank you uh, very much. I'll do this talk in English and I'll read uh, fragments from my book in Galician, but there's a translation. In English available, so everyone can follow the 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 meaning of those passages. And shall I go there? And I've got my notes there. Thank you. I suppose you can hear me without. Uh, there's not a big commotion, and there's not too much uh, noise. So, um, being here in Dublin, I thought it would be interesting to do just four small points about uh, Galicia and what migration represented for, for our, our country. And well, we can say that Galicia has been a, a migrant nation for uh, many long years, but uh, mainly at uh, the second half of the 19th century and all over the 20th century. Um, from in the 1800s to the start of, to the beginning of the 20th century, this is uh, Vigo, uh, the migrants uh, living for America. Over 400,000 Galicians emigrated to, to America, mainly to Cuba and to Argentina. They were the, 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 mm, the, those two countries where uh, most Galician emigrated, uh, as well as people from Asturias, uh, from other places of, of um, Spain. But it's interesting to know that uh, for many years, Argentinians called all Spanish people Galicians because uh, there were so many of them that it, it, it was uh, the term that they coined for them. Uh, we had scenes like this in the ports of Vigo and Coruña, on the left, uh, Coruña on the right as well, Coruña photograph from Manuel Ferrol. And this uh, evokes me a song that I've been uh, very fond of. It's uh, the version I, I really love is by the post, and it says thousands are sailing all across the Western Ocean to a land of opportunity. Uh, Irish went mainly to the States, and Galicians mainly went uh, to South America, but at the end of the day, it's the same feeling, it's the same kind of background and the same kind of uh, displacement uh, that both countries uh, lived. Uh, I was toying with the idea of singing the song for you, but I'd better not, not <laughs> do it. <laughs> and then from 1951 to 1975, there was a change uh, in the trend of migration, and people started looking to Europe instead of looking to America. And nearly half a million of Galicians went to Europe by boat and also by charter plane. And my own family is part of this story. This is my grandfather, Marcelino, my grandmother, Virtudes, 
and my mother Isabel and my aunt uh, Leonor. Uh, and this is Betanzos, um, a small town in Galicia, in the province of Coruña, 20 kilometers from, from Coruña. And uh, they were of humble origin. And uh, this photo must have been taken. My mother was born in 1944, so this must have been 1950, 1951. Um, well, my grand grandfather, he was a cobbler. In English, you've got a term for a cobbler and another one for a shoemaker. In, in Galician, we've got zapatero and Spanish zapatero. And then you've got what remendon, that's the word that distinguishes a cobbler from a shoemaker. And he learned his trade, his, that one uh, on the left. But uh, in 1955, he decided he would emigrate to Venezuela. At the time, Venezuela was a country that was uh, very famed and uh, sought after destinations for Galicians to emigrate because of the petrol, the oil industry. And um, he thought that he would leave his family behind, his uh, wife and his three daughters, and go to Venezuela where he would be uh, a rich man, he would become a rich man in just a few years. And there was no use in trying to convince him that uh, to separate family would bring more pain and suffering than being poor together. But he was adamant that he would uh, find fame and fortune uh, at the other side of the ocean. Now that I think about it, I think my grandfather must have been uh, the victim of what would now we would call fake news. Because there were uh, people living, uh, his neighbors for instance, who were always talking about their relatives they had living in Venezuela and how rich they were and how much food they had and everything they had and those kind of stories came back to Galicia and people thought it would be easier for them uh, to lead a more accommodated life in countries such as Venezuela. And also what we could call now a false publicity because um, the the ship lines that would take immigrants to the other parts of the world. That was their business. So I suppose they had these agents uh, roaming around uh, the small hamlets of Galicia and trying to sell their ship tickets to take uh, immigrants to, uh, to countries such as um, Venezuela. Well, um, he didn't uh, listen to any advice that um, told him that it would be difficult for him to, to, to live a life alone in Venezuela. And he left behind three daughters, aged nine, six, and three, and also his, his, his wife, my grandmother Virtudes. Um, he started sending photographs, like this one. This photograph went really bad in my family because they, were, they weren't living in poverty, but they didn't have enough food or enough diversity of food. And to have this photograph of your father, your husband, enjoying a relaxed life and drinking beer in Venezuela, while he couldn't send not a single uh, peseta, a single euro, a single, uh, no money. So it wasn't, um, what they expected from him. But then he sent a, a few more photos that you can see how that easy immigration life uh, he had expected was starting to take his toll on him. You can see he is in just uh, four or five years, he, he seems much older, he seems a bit beaten down by life, and I suppose what he had expected, uh, it wasn't that dream uh, to become true. The ones that were left behind, uh, my grandmother and my, my mother, uh, his, she's the, the eldest, my aunt, they sent this photograph to him. And when I first found this photo, I was um, struck by the expressions in their face, by their 
uh, what you can read in their eyes. Because in my grandmother, you can see that dignity in her, in her stance. Uh, she's keeping the family together. She's providing uh, for, for her daughters. And in the eyes of the daughters, you can see the way that they are saying to, to their father, uh, your adventure has, um, has extended itself too much. We've been alone for six years. Uh, you haven't sent any money. Uh, you are starting to uh, leave our letters unanswered. It's time for you to come back. And that's what my grandmother says to his husband. Uh, Please come back because I can't support the family on my own. And uh, we can still be poor, but at least we've got each other. And he says, no way. I don't want to go back. I've done some investments here. Uh, these things need time. So uh, I'm still staying in Venezuela for a few years. So my grandmother, uh, she answers back and she says, if you don't want to come, I'll go there. I'll try and uh, make a living as well, and at least we can be together. So he said, uh, I don't want you to come here. This, is, this isn't a country for women. That's the expression he used. Whatever he intended to mean, that's something that we don't know. And my grandmother, she, uh, she thought about the possibility of buying a ship ticket without uh, telling him first, and arriving in Caracas, in Venezuela, and finding him, and surprising him, and once she, she was there, she wouldn't uh, have the opportunity to go back. But uh, by chance, she met uh, a Catholic priest who has been in the missions in Venezuela. And she said, uh, you seem a good woman. You look like a good, wo a wo good woman. And I think it would be worse for you to go to Venezuela. Because if you go there, you will probably find that he has another family. If he, if he doesn't want to come back, if he doesn't want you to go there, if he hasn't started leaving those letters unanswered, if he hasn't sent any money, all those signals can only mean one thing. He's got another family there. So uh, I think you would waste your time and it would be very difficult to you to um, try and uh, find yourself in a different country, uh, many kilometers away, how you would go back to Spain. It's going to be a problem. So um, she decided um, to immigrate as well, but that's something that uh, will come uh, later. Um, my grandmother, she was desperate at the time. She worked in all kinds of jobs. Um, <coughs> for instance, she washed uh, clothes and linen in the river. Uh, this is a postcard from, from the 30s, but this uh, building was still in use in the 50s and in the 60s, where humble women from Betantos went to wash in the river the linen and the clothes of the rich families uh, of, of Betantos. And my grandmother was one of those. Uh, my, my aunt and my mother went to lend her a hand, and they told me that in winter, because of the of the coldness of the water, my grandmother had chill blains in her hands and she wasn't able to just to, to strike a match to light a fire. So uh, she also worked as a waitress in a, in a restaurant. She also worked as a waitress in the, in the canteen of the train station. She worked in a cheese factory, in a meat factory, and she couldn't uh, earn enough money to uh, support her three daughters. And she started developing an, an obsession that it was, I can just barely make ends meet, and what would happen if I fell in? Uh, then I wouldn't be able to provide for, for my family. So that's when she decided to, to immigrate. Um, that's her uh, in one of those uh, banquets. But first, I'll read just one fragment. You've got the, the English translation yeah. here, if you want. Anyone, what one? <coughs> 
This is one reflection about uh, when I was a kid, uh, I, I hadn't never met my grandfather. He was in Venezuela and nobody spoke about him. It was like a ghost who had disappeared from our family. But I, as a kid, asked questions. All kids have grand grandparents, but where's my, my grandfather? And this is what I wrote in the first fragment. O feito de medrar implica, entre outros, cuestionarse esa narración que, asito de mito fundacional, todas as familias se transmiten a nova xeración para situarlos no mundo. Pase niño ese retrato perdo seu brillo e nela agroman as primeiras fisguas que van cuarteando pintura e ensanchando as fendas ata desprenderse para revelar esa outra estampa que agochaban como as arrepentimentos que o artista ocultou baixo máis capas de óleo. A nenez desembocara na primeira adolescencia e o avó seguía ausente, para proporcionar unhas respostas, preguntas clave que hoxe formulaba a súa filla maior, a miña nai. Por que migrar a Venezuela? E por que a boa non fora con ele? Ainda máis, se ela mesma tamén emigrara, só que a outro país, noutro continente, por que marchara precisamente na dirección contraria? A que se dedicaba lá? E por que nunca volvera? Ou nin tan siquera se vivira? Formar outra familia, unha familia venezolana de seu, despois de tantos anos, seguía vivo, As dúas cuestións finais adoitaban recibir unha resposta, máis unha intuición que unha certeza. Unha probable afirmación para a primeira, para a segunda, un non, no que supoño que a esperanza vencía a última. Well, my grandmother goes to London. Why does she go to London? Because she met a neighbor who had a friend who had just emigrated to London the, the year before, and they met by chance on the street. And she said, this woman, she's in this situation, she's desperate, she wants to emigrate. What do you, what can you tell her about your life in London? And she said, well, it's hard work, but you, you earn enough, it's much better than here. If you want to come with me, you can come with me. So if that woman, instead of being in London, had been in uh, Germany or France or Switzerland, our family history would have been much, much different. But uh, it was in, in, in London. And she went there in 1961. You've got to understand that she was 33 years old. She left behind her three daughters. She has been abandoned by her husband. She didn't know a word of English. She has never been in a big city such as uh, London. The biggest city she had known was Vigo, and that was the day she went there to, to board the ship to go to, to the UK. So uh, this is what I wrote about her situation in, in London. It's the second fragment. Das amizades londinenses da Boa, Celia era máis antiga e unha presencia constante. En realidade, María ser en ambas de Betanzos por a Londres a culpable de que se conhecesen. Celia levaba ano e medio migrada, cando regresou a casa nas súas primeiras vacaciones de Nadal. Un deses días de dezembro presentouse en a casa unha veciña, fina do seco, con outra muller que de cando en vez traballaba alguna leira ou xornal, se había oportunidade, era miña boa. Decidía xa emigrar ela tamén ante o abandono de facto do home, e fina falaralle de que sabía de que marchara Inglaterra e podían achegarse a preguntarle como é ir, como é ir. A miña boa ficou sin dicirle e foi fina que falou que o marido marchara a Venezuela, que non mandaba cartos porque diz que non gañaba, pero tampouco quería volver, que virtudes tiña seu cargo tres fillas pequenas, que se eslombaba sen que lle chegasen os cartos e que estaba disposta a irse ao estranxeiro, ela tamén, se iso lle aseguraba mantenza das cativas. Celia escoitou, ollando a muller que falaba e a muller que calaba, a cabeza baixa. E logo dixo, eu volvo a semana despois da que ven, será amañado para marchar ou de vir tan marido. A mañalo non foi fácil. A boa ainda estaba oficialmente casada. En aquela altura, en 1961, a legislación franquista supeditaba o consentimento expreso do cónxuxe para prácticamente calquera acto oficial ou público. Viaxar o estranxeiro non era unha excepción. O habitual de feito era que a dona figurase como subordinada no pasaporte do cabeza de familia, cun espazón branco reservado para a súa foto a carón do home. 
Pero también había personas, por empatía o interés propio, que abrían vías disimuladas para facilitarse las causas a gente en la situación de labor. Don Javier, la agencia dependiente de la Banca Núñez, tramitaba documentos de pasajes los emigrantes que luego ingresarían a remesas de cartos en sus contas. Gracias a él, pudo esquivar o atranco otro más que supuña ausencia de los pozos en Venezuela. So, they did a fake signature of my grandfather, so my grandmother could go to England. Um, the first job my grandmother had in London was living and working with a family where she worked all day and they nearly starved her to death because they gave her just the smallest rations of food and also they left out potatoes and being in Ireland you will understand this. The potatoes are the nourishment of the poor. And in Galicia, the potato is like... Um, potatoes. Yes, that's it. <laughs> Erin Moure, the Canadian Galician poet, uh, has a poem called Himno a Potencia la Patata. And she says it very clearly in that poem. And my, my grandmother suffered and she started uh, losing weight and uh, she went weaker and weaker uh, by the week. So uh, it was a very difficult situation uh, for her. She went to Mass one Sunday and another uh, Galician immigrant saw her and she noticed what was happening so we asked the priest if uh, he could find her another job and they took her to a hospital in Covent Garden that now it's a luxury hotel and uh, she worked there for a few months it was run by uh, some uh, nuns from France uh, the order of the Sacre Coeur and the first four weeks they had her in bed so she could recover uh, because she wasn't in a, a state to be able to, to work. And then she went to uh, work for a nurse's <coughs> home in Brahman Gardens in Kensington. That's my grandmother uh, sitting down uh, the first, you know, on the first step. At the time, the UK was famed for its welfare state. It was uh, the envy of all Europe. The nurses that worked in Guy's Hospital they could go to their homes, to their families, or they could live in this uh, place where they would find <coughs> their uh, rooms cleaned, they would cook for them, their meals were ready, their clothes were washed and uh, pressed, and everything was speaking Spanish, as you say in English. And who did all that work for them? Well, people like my grandmother immigrant women from Galicia, from Asturias, from Aragón, from Extremadura, from Portugal. And, and for me, these women are the real foundation of that welfare state. Uh, the foundations are what you don't see, but at the same time, they make uh, the building possible. And these women did that kind of work that it's invisible, and it still is invisible. Uh, Many, many jobs that women do are still invisible, and I think uh, they, at the same time, are the base that's very important uh, for society in general. And also, for them, it allows them to earn that money and send it back to, to, their, to their families. Well, over the years, uh, my grandmother she found her place in the city. Uh, for her, uh, it was very important to identify where to buy that, those objects and all that stuff that she wanted to send back to her, to her, to her family. And her fuel was PG. Uh, that that uh, she she drank it uh, by the gallon. And I think I've inherited uh, my, uh, 
my likeness for 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 PG. Well, um, there she she transformed she transformed herself. She wasn't virtudes anymore. Nobody calls her virtudes in Nano. They call her Betty, and that would take us to a, another level to talk about double and triple and multiple identities because you can be one person in one place and you can be another in another one or you can be two different persons in the same place but you can show what you want and that part of that identity that is useful for you in that context and that's what she did uh, she not only worked in that nurse's home she also worked in a hospital and also she uh, worked cleaning houses for, for other people and they called her Betty, and that was, was her name. Uh, at the same time, Betty mixed Galician, English, Spanish, and it was really hilarious to listen to her uh, speaking Galician and then, for instance, say disgusting, or that kind of, of words that being here in Trinity College, I won't offend your ears and I won't repeat them but uh, they were very characteristic of, their, of, of, her, of her way of expressing herself. That's Betty in, in London, and that's Virtudes in Galicia, a photo taken by Anna. And you can see the same person, and at the same time, it's two different uh, persons. Hmm? Uh, uh, and that's what I wrote about in this fragment I'm going to, to, to read to you. I'm talking about how she mixed Galician in Spanish and in English. Esa convivencia léxica era un signo claro do dualismo que aniñaba no seu cativo corpo. A colisión entre unha muller que fixera aos 15 anos, o mesmo ano que rematara a guerra civil, e que xa adulta pasara da existencia labrera das agras e a servidume vila a enorme cidade que nese tempo estaba se reinventar de metrópole colonial en epicentro da modernidade. Londres obrara unha transformación virtudes converteras en Betty, dúas mulleres que habitaban un mesmo físico. Unha coexistencia indisociable, pero que concedía maior ou menor protagonismo unha faceta ou outra segundo o contexto. Cando se anuaba un pano na cabeza e dobraba o lombo para apañar nas patacas ou cortaba piñas na vendima, pasaba por calquera boa que cumpría co seu papel ditado por unha solidaridade campesina esluída, mas ainda vixente nas familias. Ninguén diría de vela tallar cun coitelo o pescozo dun coello ata de sangralo, que esas mesmas mans unhas horas antes borraran co ferro as engurras da seda que lle confiaban os desafogados residentes dos acomodados distritos postais de Londres. Tampouco ninguén repararía na xubilada co seu anónimo impermeable de cómodas sandalias, a caza de chollos no mercado dos vendres en Eswa Road ou o dominical de Elskos, ata que lles remarquiaba os vendedores ambulantes, ingleses ou sirios, gregos ou italianos, tal como faría na feira de Betantos. Vendedores que abrían moitos ollos e despois ceibaban unha gargallada cando logo de acordar o prezo, aquela bella espelida metía man por o colo da blusa para sacar as libras vendo bradiñas dunha fabriqueira prendida cun imperdible no interior do sostén de Corca. Migration gave her the opportunity to uh, provide for her family, but at the same time she was thinking um, about the future, about her daughters. And when my mother Isabel, uh, who had left school when she was 14, she wanted to be a teacher, but the, the family didn't have the resources to send her to, uh, to university or, or even to secondary school, my grandmother said, you've got to come to London to help to work for the family. And in 1963, my grandmother and my mother did the, uh, did the route from Vigo to, Corunt uh, to, to England aboard the Virgen de Montserrat, that was one of the uh, boats that took Galician immigrants uh, to the UK. And for my mother, it was a very difficult uh, situation as well. Um, but my grandmother was adamant that she had to follow into her footsteps and find uh, her own way in the UK. My grandmother was also in the process of 
providing for her family. She had already bought a flat uh, with the money she had earned in the UK. And that was a really a great achievement for the family because they hadn't owned a place, never. They had never owned a place. It was a very humble flat on a fourth floor without any uh, uh, elevator, but it was theirs. It was a, a, like a conquest for them. And for my mother, it was also kind of achievement, but in a different way. The first year, my mother lived in a convent where they had old people and she looked after them. And uh, my mother was, and she still is, a very uh, religious person. Uh, she, she, she believes strongly uh, in the Catholic faith. And for her living uh, in a convent with nuns, she was quite happy. Learning the language was a bit difficult for her at first. But she, uh, she, she was, uh, she was, she, she, she didn't know at first. But then she had the inti intuition that it would help her uh, in that process to educate herself. She always, uh, she had always liked reading books, but there was no public library in Petanthos at the time. The family was poor, so they didn't. Uh, she didn't have uh, the chance to read many books. And when she arrived in London, she went to public libraries, she went to museums, she went to galleries, she went to concerts, she went to open air theatre, all free, of course. And she thought she was in paradise. Today, uh, in, in the Long Room Library, there was this quote by Borges where he says that paradise is a library. A library. And for her, it was, it was something like that. All the money she earned, she gave it to her mother, so uh, her mother administrated uh, that money. And after a year, she said to, to her daughter, well, now uh, you've earned uh, money, now it's the time for you to buy yourself a treat. What do you want? Do you want a radio? And she said, no, I want a writing machine. And so she could learn how to type, and she could write her papers and her stuff. And that's her, really happy with her new uh, writing machine. The problem was when she went back to Galicia, to Spain, to Betanzos in her first summer holidays, uh, she, she, she didn't expect that uh, the girls who had been her friends uh, since they were small kids, they didn't want to talk to her because their families said that uh, London and England and Europe, uh, everything outside Spain, uh, was living uh, in sin. And uh, if a single girl went to the UK and lived alone, that would only mean that she had been living in sin or maybe she had done an abortion. That's what uh, those mothers told their daughters. And that's why they didn't want to know uh, anything about uh, my mother. And my mother, she was really hurt by, by the attitude of, of those friends, but that was the Spain we had uh, at the time. <coughs> my, uh, my mother, um, after learning English, where she, she found a, a different world, she went to English classes with people from Germany, from Ethiopia. The first time she heard about Garcia Lorca was uh, uh, because a, an Ethiopian friend of her told her about the poet. She hadn't heard about him in, uh, in the 1960s. And when she came back, they told her that she would, uh, with the English and her typing skills, she could uh, do a course to be a secretary, and then she would have a job when she had finished her studies, but that job never appeared. So uh, she she was already um, seeing my my father, and they decided to marry and immigrate together to the UK. And my father didn't know a word of English. He was a bricklayer. Uh, he had also left school when he was fourteen, and he had been working ever since. 
the first job he tried to do was in a hairdresser's, in a barber's, but he was left-handed and they didn't want to take him as an apprentice. That's how they treated left-handed people uh, at the time. And uh, he, he said, I'll follow you, I'll go with you, and uh, we'll make a living together in the UK. That his alien soda, it's funny to think that the same word in English, alien, can mean someone as an immigrant or someone from outer space. And I suppose that's what many people in the UK thought about uh, immigrants at, at the time. And uh, they arrived at East Greenstead, that was their, their first place where they lived, and then they went uh, uh, to London. <coughs> I haven't read the fragment for... I'll go back to fragment four, that's uh, where my, my grandmother, uh, she um, bought all those things that she needed for, for her family. And then I'll go back to my dad, just a doctor who jumped inside. Sorry. Nos mercados acababa plenitud de su ambición emigrante como fornecedora a la familia, un papel que se resistió a abandonar. Mesmo cando a necesidade deixara desganar e os tempos eran máis benévolos. As libras da faldriqueira deron para sacar adiante a tres fillas e unha nai que na súa ausencia velaba polas cativas. Non só deran para un teito en propiedade, todo unha conquista para alguén cuxa clase non conhecera máis que a provisionalidade dunha posguerra prorrogada, senón para unha vida confortable, sobre todo digna. De Londres viñeron camas, sabas e os primeiros enredóns, teas para vestidos e panos para abrigos calzado, complementos e alfaias asumibles, baixelas, olas e peteiras, libros e revistas que traían indicios dun mundo máis libre e moderno, como aqueles retratos a tamaño natural dos primeiros Beatles e que só se conservan na memoria da miña nai e as súas irmás e curmas. Os bultos de maior tamaño chegaban a tabetanzos no reparto de algunhas empresas de transporte especializadas nas remesas dos emigrantes, donde o derezo de destino redistribuíase segundo as indicacións manuscritas da BOA, aqueles cuxo nome de Viñero Masín mentre paseaba o seu adestrado ollar por os postos. Unha saia de las cocesas para a Fiorenta Isabel, un chaquetón para Leonor, uns zapatos para Elena, toallas ou mantas para Nai. Then, when I was a teenager, I spent summers with my grandmother, and I saw how she prepared all what she had bought to set back to Galicia. A véspera da nosa partida, ás veces mesmo dous ou tres días antes, a boa dedicaba a tarde a encaixar, igual que un teba cabezas, aquelas mercadorías que fora acumulando no seu diminuto cuarto, dende xaneiro, ou as que agarraban quenda ante as nosas maletas abertas sobre a cama. Eu facía viaxe de ida con estritas instrucións de boar o máis lixeiro posible, o cal para a boa significaba unha única muda, ou ás veces ni miso. Sabía que viña con máis carga, xa que os veciños e coñecidos betanceiros aproveitaban para enviar agasallos aos seus parentes emigrados. Por o xeral, un queixo do país ou unha restra de chourizos, e tamén, ainda que con menos frecuencia, alguna botella da uga ardente doméstica que aboitaba procurarme preguntas incómodas na aduana. A ela non lle importaba, sempre que os envíos excluísen a ela. A caixa de galletas que unha das miñas tías me deu para ela foi recibida cun desgusto que calquera outro tomaría por desprezo de non coñecela, xa que a miña chegada incluía o ritual de visitas casa por casa para cumplir coas entregas, e así saudaba os coñecidos antes de que a miña maleta ficase a súa disposición como ela quería, baleira. Despois de difíciles escollas entre o que lavábamos e o que ficaba para outra ocasión, e despois de repetir as loitas contra as limitadas dimensións das maletas e dos bolsos de man, afrontabamos a longa e complicada operación de pechadas que maletas. E faltaba ainda a proba definitiva, a báscula en cuxo suizo depositábamos o resultado de tantos fotos. A boa tiña unha das domésticas, con agulla, sobre a que colocábamos a maleta, primeiro en posición horizontal e logo vertical, a mesmo volume e distintas medicións, ainda que co denominador común de exceder con moito o permitido polas compañías aéreas. Se en aquela se podían facturar 18 kilos, porque o habitual era levar 20, nos andábamos polos 25, e non poucas veces marcábamos os 30, Entre os dous podíamos presentarnos ante o mostrador coa suma de 70 ou 75 kilos, que intentábamos disimular con máis bolsos de cabina. 
ela levaba baixo brazo 40 ou 5, eu levaba baixo brazo 40 ou 50 prezados discos de vinilo, ben envoltos en varias bolsas nas mesmas tendas onde os atoparan. Igual que a boa conhecía ben os mercados, eu sabía onde procurar rarezas de reggae, directos dos clash ou gangas a 50 peniques. Unha ficción miña que a boa aborrecía. Estes discos teus, mira, cabultan. Se non os mercaras, ainda que había uns panos de cocina que lle collín a túa nai. E mira, aí quedan. Nin os homes. Ela dedicábame unha collada de censura. E logo, para que compras máis? Outro máis, para colección barujita. A túa nai foi o mesmo cos libros. Igualiño. Dá grazas de que non os leven a maleta. Co que deben de pesar. Os quilos, sempre os quilos. Pesábamos a súa maleta, e logo a miña. Sacábamos cousas para cambialas por outras máis lixeiras. Pero a buia testana resistíase a baixar. Cando por fin rematábamos, era máis por esgotamento que por aproximarnos a carga permitida. As miñas dúbidas sobre o éxito do noso paso por o mostrador de facturación non eran ben recibidas. Dez quilos de máis e moito, eh? Con que me custou meter todo? E pechada. Pois vai así o carallo. A min, se me preguntan, digo lles que ambas as dúas son túas. Non me maes. A boa, ademais, desenvolverá unha teoría coa que aliviar a súa conciencia. Seramos os primeiros en facturar, o persoal da aeroliña estaría máis disposto a facer a vista gorda. Xa que o avión estaría ainda baleiro. Como se tivesen un contador mental ou real que ia diminuindo o seu grado de tolerancia por seso de peso a medida que se ia enchendo a dela. Xa que logo, a madruga reglamentaria pola hora de saída, había que engadirlle o tempo necesario para presentarse coas tres ou catro horas de antelación suplementaria nas que a boa insistía. A súa teoría nunca fallaba. O seu aval éramos case tres decenios de viaxes sen ter que pagar nunca a penalización por exceso de equipaxe. Con todo, un verán cambiou o avión polo autocar para comprobar por si mesma si era verdade o que se dixeran outros emigrantes de que por estrada se podía levar ainda máis carga. Non debeu de quedar convencida porque aquela longa de viaxe de día e medio foi a única que fixemos xuntos e logo volvemos aos charter. Ainda que a min me permitiu traer a miña primeira guitarra eléctrica unha imitación barateira dunha Fender Stratocaster, o único que era que enden de permitir dun escaparate ateigado de alfaias nunha daquelas maravillosas tendas de Denmark. As you can see, I went to see my grandmother, but first I was born in London. And there was quite a possibility that I hadn't been born in London because when we reached uh, the English coast, my parents had to uh, undergo a medical examination. My parents had got married, and then they decided they would go to London about two months later. And in that period of time, my mother was pregnant. And at the time, uh, Galician women or uh, immigrant women couldn't take their family with them to the UK. So they thought that there was a risk that they would uh, reach the UK border and that uh, in the medical examination they would find that my mother was pregnant and they would have to go back. And my dad, he went his medical examination and uh, he had, uh, how do you say, carriers in English in his hands. They were very um, hard, hard uh, out of, because of work. And the, the doctor, she asked him if he played any sport. And he said, oh, yes, sport, sport, yeah, uh, golf, golf. And he had never played golf in his life, but it was because of his, of his work tools. And uh, my mother, she went, underwent another medic, medical examination, and they uh, did uh, a body exploration, trying to find out if she was pregnant and I managed to hide myself very well and they didn't find me and that's how I ended up uh, being born in London in 1971. This was one of our first uh, flats but uh, we had to move house uh, quite often. In some places they didn't want babies, in other places they didn't want pregnant women, in other places uh, the heating you had to put uh, coins in the gas heater, in your room, and at the end of the day it was very, very expensive. So they were on the move trying to find a better place. And they used my um, the, um, 
the carriage where they took me as a, as a baby. They used it uh, to transport uh, everything from one flat to the other. I was brought up as an English kid, or a British kid, but we spent the summers in Galicia. And that was my first summer. Uh, now in Galicia it's very difficult to see not only babies dressed in Galician traditional <laughs> dress, but also uh, this, this um, amazing photograph of uh, cattle uh, on the streets of the town. Sometimes I, I ask myself what, what, what would I have felt when, when, when I was uh, in the company of these amazing animals, uh, and I can't remember. It's a shame. That's my aunt. And for me, um, Galicia was what it, uh, it is, uh, that kind of mental state for the second generation of migrants. It's the place where they, their grandparents live. In my case, it was the opposite because my grandmother still lived in London. It's a place where you go on holidays, a sunny place where everyone's happy, everyone uh, goes to the beach and it's sunny, it never rains, or at least in summer, and people go to the airport to receive you. And uh, it's... Uh, like another kind of paradise. Yeah? It, 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 that was for me, uh, for the first five years of, of my life. And it's um, another kind of dual identity as well, because I was baptized as Jesus, Jesus Antonio. Jesus was one of my great grandparents, and Antonio was my grandfather. And as you know, in the UK, nobody is called Jesus. So I was Tony in England. And that's what my uh, mates in school called me and what everyone called me. And my mother, who insisted in speaking with me in English, called me. I was baptized in, as a Catholic boy in, in a Catholic church in Our Lady of Victories in Kensington. And they were baptizing another baby who was from Irish parents. And as my grandfather uh, wasn't present, the, the father of the other baby acted as godfather by proxy for me. So that's why I like to say I've got an Irish godfather. <laughs> uh, sometimes I think about that baby who was baptized at the same time with me. What kind of life must he have? Must uh, must he have led him? He's here. <laughs> He's somewhere here. <laughs> Maybe he, he came back to, to Ireland. Who knows? Macon was the surname of that, of that family. And I suppose that's why now I like so much the Pogues, Guineas, Irish Mist, Shimushini, James Joyce, uh, all kinds of things Irish. Because I've got an Irish godfather. I think that's... <laughs> makes you interesting. I think it's, it's good. I think it's nice. But then, when I was five, my parents decided it was the best time to go back. They thought that if I studied school seriously, they would have to wait until I was 16, and it was too much time for them to wait. So we went back, we packed all our belongings, and we went back uh, to Galicia. And my father started working as a bricklayer as well, and also my mother started giving English classes at home. And my father, the first thing he did when he uh, started living again in Galicia was first to rent a small plot of land and then to buy a plot of land and to plant potatoes and to plant uh, vines and uh, onions and all kinds of vegetables. And I would help as a kid in all those uh, things related with agriculture and it I found it later on in a Shimushini poem called Digging and uh, what he says in this poem is what do I what I lived with my, my, my own father there's a fragment that I'm going to read to you that says the coarse boots nestled on the lug the shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly he rooted out tall tops 
buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving the cool hardness in our hands. By God, the old man could handle a spade, just like his old man. I found myself reflected in this poem, because my father, he planted potatoes, his father planted potatoes, his brother planted potatoes. During many, many years, in my, my uncle's home, the, the supper, the dinner, was always Spanish omelette. Always eggs from their hands, potatoes from their orchards. That's a kind of uh, economy that takes you to, to, to being self-sufficient, and they, they were doing that for many, many years. Well, for me, it was a, a very difficult period. Talking about soil and earth, I, I felt like I had been transplanted. I had been taken from my London childhood back to Galicia. Supposedly, it was my, my homeland. But I had been brought up in English. I read books by uh, Michael Bond. Paddington Bear was my childhood hero. Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was the book I read most when I was a kid. Dr. Little, the lady read books, were uh, my guide when I learned to, to, to read and write. All my Spanish friends, my Galician friends, didn't know a word of English. They hadn't heard about all this uh, English world. My mother talked to me in English, and people would criticize us openly and publicly uh, in the street for doing that. But uh, she made quite a good living by giving English classes, and I did my homework with her, and I, I studied lending a hand, and I should have been, in the ideal world, an English teacher, but uh, I didn't realize it at the time, and I started uh, thinking about other plans for my future. At the time, for me, it was difficult, because when you are a kid, you want to settle in. You want to have friendships, and they don't, you don't want people to criticize you. And I, I felt misunderstood. I felt like I was someone who, uh, who was transplanted. Until uh, when I was 15, 16, I started spending those summers with my grandmother in London, and I found out that London had, as the saying says, you can find anything you may need for your life there. And that's when I said, OK. Uh, this is my heritage, this is part of my upbringing, this can be positive for me. I'm going to bridge both worlds. I'm going to be Galician, but I'm also going to be that English kid I had once been. And I, with my travel card, I started roaming all over London and uh, buying books and clothes and comics and uh, records, making friends. And I started looking at myself and at my present past uh, under a different light, under that kind of people who belong to different worlds and they can uh, find a way to make it merge into their personality. In a way, I was privileged because my grandmother lived in a very small uh, room, but it was in Kensington, and I didn't realize how lucky I was until she came back and then I had to, I found out by myself uh, what the London hotels and other accommodation prices are, but uh, I, was, I was able to, um, to glimpse how her life in London had been and that's the, the last fragment I'm going to read. Visité Yagua cada verano entre 1986 y 1990. También pasamos juntos en Londres o Nadal de 1989, los primeros días de la nueva década, de esta vez acompañados por los meus pais. Cuando regresé en septiembre de 1991, en vésperas de empezar la carrera, él era por concluidos 30 años de emigración y abandonara Kensington Square para volver a Betanzos. En teoría, o su retorno era definitivo, pero de cuando en vez, ainda volvería a escapar de nuevo. En 1995 reuniríame con él en una fugaz semana de agosto, la primera visita miña desde que fuera a universidad. Fue la única en mucho tiempo. Mucho tiempo fue también o que o cabo votó a nombres, pero en aquella altura asociación entre las dos, a Goa y e a Cidade, acabaron grado de ensamblaje tal que me parecía más lógico. No podía concibir a una sin a otra, 
como si ya naciera siendo emigrante y aquella condición fuese atemporal e irrenunciable. Tampoco me preguntaba qué necesidad de tiña de mantener o sacrificio e a soidade, cuando ya superara de sobra a nos antes las urgencias que obligaran a marchar. Bueno. For me, my grandmother, she was the equivalent to London, and London was the equivalent to my grandmother. And only when I reflected on my family history, I understood that she had uh, a past before that, and uh, her present uh, in London, her, her, her daily routines uh, were full of loneliness, of solitude, and of hardships. For me, spending the summers with her was like a kind of holiday when I was 15, 16, but then I found out how difficult it had been for her to, to be part of that city. Um, she, she was also uh, aware of being different, and that uh, kind of rubbed off uh, on me. And it took me again to Shimoshini when he went to the States And then he wrote, how does a migrant feel? I was both home and away. I was an, insa in, an insider of sorts, and at the same time situated at an angle to the place. And that's uh, what makes uh, someone a classic like him, that he's writing about you uh, much earlier than those things then happened to you. Uh, it's, it's amazing how someone maybe 30 years ago wrote what's happening to you now and you find out in his, in, in his words what's happening to you. And I think being brought up in those uh, different worlds it makes you feel at home and away in both those worlds and it gives you another point of view, another perspective to be able to uh, see things under a different light and to be able to interpret or translate it to other uh, persons and also at the same time to yourself. Um, for me, it was a very long process to write this book. It was about between 10 and 12 years. And I, I also had to translate my own family history to myself and then make it, um, um, had to explain it uh, to the reader. I was aware that in Galicia there were many stories like, like these stories. No? Uh, my, my grandfather who, goes to Venezuela and for 50 years nobody knows what became of him. My grandmother who lives alone for 30 years, uh, my, my mother who learns English and then gives English classes. But uh, seriously, I, I doubted if I had the talent to be able to convey it in a literature form and to be able to, to make a book out of it. And that was uh, the book that finally came about Uh, my father died five years ago, and that was like uh, the wake call for me. Uh, uh, he didn't uh, manage to read that, uh, a single word of the book because I had wasted so much time reflecting and being afraid of writing it that he had died before that time came. And that's when I, when I said, no, you've got to do serious work and now you've got to finish the book. And then I did the Uh, out of translation into Spanish, and that was too much for me. It was um, dealing with two different publishers, two different editors, with their um, word explaining and their nuances. But it was very interesting at the same time to be able to, to render it into, into another language. So, um, I also ended up interpreting my own family story in my own, trying to understand where I come from and what migration did for Shaitan for us. The starting point of my life in London can be traced to the migration of my parents and that to my grandparents. Everything could have been very different if he hadn't left for Venezuela, if he had come back, if my grandmother had went to another country, if my parents had, hadn't migrated, or if they had settled in London for years. But for good or for worse, it's what we are. We must be grateful and aware of those, what, what, what those generations did for us. Sacrifices such as my grandmother's and my mother's. And now it's my turn to try and write, to write about it as well as I can. And I was struck by the responsibility, but in the end, I think 
everything came out well. And that's the end of what I had prepared for you. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank mm -hmm. you.